Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Lovely weather we're having today. Greg is accusing me of spring vibes because I'm here in my t-shirt and shorts. I'm just feeling fly today. Um, I'm just trying to make up because I couldn't attend the, the Bill Gates lecture that Greg wrote about the other day. Um, I was dying to hear what the man thought. I know, I know he's, he's been working on some chicken, I think chicken vaccinations and you know, all, you know, chick, how chicken gets me. So I was waiting for more details on that. He didn't mention the chicken, but <laughs> so like, he, did, he did talk about a lot of other sort I'm of like, vaccinations. like, what else is there to talk about? Health man? issues. It's like, are we, <laughs> what's, what's the chicken situation? But really, really love to be back. Thank you for all the people who've been engaging with us on Twitter. It's really great to hear. Um, quick f- sort of follow up on the sound issue I talked about briefly last week. When you're listening on, there's three settings, especially if you're on the Cliff Central app. Um, there's low, medium, and high. So it's just really just jumping on and, and, and making sure you're on high and getting the, the sort of the clearest sound. Okay. Last week we got a bunch of requests and people were tweeting in and being like, why aren't you talking about Zimbabwe? Why aren't you talking about Zimbabwe? Um, and, and our answer was simply we just wanted to do it. And we had the time to get it right and make sure that we were doing it justice, really. We didn't really want to just jump in and, and be me, sort of ad-libbing the same way I do about chicken. Um, so we've really taken our time and spoken sort of in depth with, with our colleague Simon Allison, who's been, who's been in Harare for the past week on the ground, trying to, trying to really understand exactly what's going on and cover live in a place where it's not always the most friendly to journalists. Um, so chatting to him and then really trying to give as much context as we can to what's happened most recently. So to give some context on what's happened recently is we saw, um, firstly, the, the hashtag this flag sort of campaign and video. Um, that's pa- Pastor Evan Mawarire and, and, and what was just a four or five minute video of, of, of a sort of an impassioned plea by a man with a flag around his neck and saying, what has this country come to? How do we take back our, our country, our nation, our flag? And that really catching fire um, on social media and online and, and, and with a lot of people in Zimbabwe and around, around the world, Zimbabweans around the world, feeling this really sort of patriotic call to, to want to, to, to feel like the country is theirs again and asking well, why, is this, why is this the Zimbabwe we see now um, with limited currency and currency shortages and, and failing economy and, and struggling on the agricultural front, the mineral front and saying what's going on. And then we've seen that build up. We saw the import ban at the borders um, on, on, on a bunch of goods coming from South Africa. And that caused a lot of the, the vendors to say what's going on. This is part of our livelihood is importing. And then we've seen this sort of spiral of continuous protesting. And, it, and it's unlike what you've seen in Zimbabwe and Harare for a while. So a lot of people are asking what's going on, what's behind this. Why do things feel worse than they are? And also, could this be the beginning of the end for, for Mugabe and for sort of the ZANU-PF regime? So those are really the questions we want to dig into. And we've got some, and we've got some great guests lined up. Um, so first, I'll start off with Professor Brian Raftopoulos, uh, who's a le- leading Zimbabwean scholar and activist, a director of research at Solidarity Peace Trust, a former professor of development studies at the University of Zimbabwe, the first chair of the Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition, and he's edited books like Becoming Zimbabwe, A History from the Pre-Colonial Period, and The Hard Road to Reform, The Politics of Zimbabwe's Global Political Agreement. Brian, can you hear us? Hello, Professor Brian. Ah, uh, how are you? Okay, perfect. Good. Um, secondly, I just want to make sure our Skype line is working. Okay, we've got we should have Doctor Blessing Miles Tendai on the line. Okay. Oh, perfect, Doctor Blessing. I'm assuming that's you. Hello, Doctor Blessing Miles. Can you hear us? 
Okay, we're just having an issue with our Skype line, but uh, Professor Raftopoulos, if you don't mind, we'll just get started with you while we sort out the Skype the Skype angle of things. Sure. Perfect. Um, so, Professor, I'd just like to start with, I mean, the big question, which is about the economy. And the, and the news reports, if somebody's watching the news, are falling on Twitter. It seems like a, a country with a, with a failing economy on all fronts. So I'd love to ask to just start with a really general question, which is what is your analysis of the state of the Zimbabwean economy at present? Look, I think it's it's been in decline for at least the last decade. Um, you know, it started in the late 1990s with the problems around the structural adjustment. The disruptions around the land, uh, changes on the land also caused uh, major um, de-linkages between agriculture and industry. So you had an increasing deindustrialization of the economy. And uh, one of the most serious effects of that has been the increasing informalization mm. of Zimbabwe's economy. Mm. Um, you know, historically, uh, from the, the Zimbabwe didn't have a big fo- informal sector. In the, in the 1980s, it was maybe 11%. And uh, it's now grown to the last uh, labor statistics analysis, I think of 2015, put it at 94% of the economy of livelihoods now earned in the informal sector. So a major change in the reconfiguration of the Zimbabwean economy, and particularly huge deindustrialization. So there's increasing reliance on mining earnings and, uh, you know, an emerging smallholder production uh, units on the land after the land uh, changes on the land, which are still, which need a great deal of assistance and help to grow into their full potential. I mean, I mean, I hear you and, and, and a lot of the, 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 the conversation has been around the agricultural output and also the, the mineral output, which a lot of people say the reason Zimbabwe has been able to, I don't say survive, but hang on for so long because was, because of such sort of abundance. In, 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 in high yield and high output agricultural land and also in minerals. Mm. Um, what, what would you say is the state of that at present? I think there's increasing problems around the mineral, uh, wealth, uh, the, the income coming out. There's been major lack of transparency uh, around the money coming out of the mines from the time of the global political agreement. Mm. When Chendai Biti was finance minister, he made complaints about the lack of transparency. China Masa, the ZANU-PF minister made similar complaints. Uh, more recently, Pumugabe uh, um, himself has said 15 billion is unaccounted for from the mine. So there's a major order taking place. So uh, around the mining income. So there is a problem around that. There's certainly been money coming through, but where it's going to is another is another matter. Much of the social expenditure around health, education, still comes from uh, um, assistance from from the West. Um, and that's the, from the period of the global political agreement uh, as well. They put in a great deal of money into health and education, and that has continued despite the uh, the sanctions and the restrictive measures. That money into assistance around the social expenditure mm. has continued. So that's also helped the state to survive. When I hear you, sorry, Professor, you'll excuse again. I just want to see if our guest has now joined us. Sorry, sure. Doctor Blessing Miles tonight. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Wonderful. And the crowd goes wild. Sorry, sir. We've been having some trouble with our Skype line, so I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful to hear that you can hear us. Um, just by way of introduction, um, we're, we're on the line with Dr. Blessing Miles Tendai, who teaches African politics at the University of Oxford, and he writes regularly in the media about Southern African politics and is the author of two books, including Politics, Patronage, and Violence in Zimbabwe and Making History in Mugabe, Zimbabwe. 
politics, intellectuals, and the media. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so, Dr. Blessing Miles, just to sort of bring you in, I'd love to just hear your assessment of, of, of sort of the recent, what seems like an increase in the temperature of the political situation in Zimbabwe right now. I mean, we've heard... Uh, unfortunately, we've been hearing for a while that things are, are not well in Zimbabwe with the economy, uh, with corruption, with this management. But it seems like recently, over the past, I'd say, month or so, six weeks, that something has changed. Does, is, it, is it that things are especially bad? Or what, what's your assessment of what's going on right now? Um, I think um, uh, Brian captured very well um, the underlying economic reasons why, why Zimbabwe is in this difficult position. Um, so that's been there for a while. I think Brian captured that well. I think the the thing that, in my view, um, the tipping point, uh, look, um, ZANU-PF campaign 2013, um, they got a huge majority. And one of the, the key messages in that campaign was the promise of creating 2 million jobs um, in the 2013 election manifesto. But since 2013, the Zimbabwean economy has shared jobs, not created them. Um, and then while that has been going on, um, ZANU-PF has been very involved with itself. Um, for the latter half of 2014, um, ZANU-PF was almost entirely focused on, on purging um, the vice president, Joyce Mujuru, and her supporters from the party. Mm. Um, that was eventually accomplished by about January 2015. Um, and just when you think um, um, they, the, the ruling party will now turn around to focus on the economy, um, um, there was renewed succession problems. Um, this time, um, discussion about whether it would be Emerson Nangagwa to take over and there another so-called rival faction led by the First Lady Grace Mugabe. So I think a lot of it has to do with this. I think that Zano has sort of fiddled uh, while Rome, Rome is burning. And I think the electorate is now incensed with that. Um, you win in 2013, you have a mandate, there are things you should deliver, mm. uh, but you're focused on internal politics. And I think some of that anger um, is it that um, this um, a state that's seemingly unresponsive to its citizens' needs, while its entire focus is on its internal politics. I think that's been what's uh, changed um, and, and, and sparked um, these protests, the social media activism. Um, but the economic problems are longstanding, as Brian um, set out very well. Um, I mean, Brian, you mentioned the economic problems, and, I, and I'm curious what you think the state can actually do about this. Is there a way to stop these protests, or at least quell the protests without fixing the long-term and deep-rooted economic challenges? I think it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, clearly, um, you know, Miles is right that the state has been consumed, ruling party has consumed by its own internal politics, and simply has not addressed. And when it has moved, try and address these issues recently through statutory instrument 64. It was, it was in many ways such a miscalculated move because while, of course, in the long run one needs to think about new forms of import substitution, mm. at this stage to do it in such a sudden manner when the majority of the population have their livelihoods from these imports is been completely disastrous. So I think their attempts to deal with the problems have been very problematic. The other issue is that at the moment their 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 negotiations with the international financial institutions are largely around the repayment of the debt, and that mm. seems to me where the focus of the IFS are. I they're not looking at putting new money into the budget; they just want to get their money back. and And the problem is, if you have a strategy which is just about repayment and conditionality, you're going to create even more worse conditions for the the majority of the people. So, at some stage, any 
new development around Zimbabwe has to involve some kind of debt relief because simply to have a strategy which focuses on that, I think is going to just exacerbate the problem. I mean, I hear you, and that's really been the big question, is what's the role of international players? Um, uh, Blessing, Miles, I'd love to hear your take on that. And what do you think is the role of the IMF? Um, some people are mentioning China and the Zimbabwe sort of look East policy as potential saviors of the economy. What, what do you think is their role? And do you think they could potentially be the lifeline that ZANU-PF needs right now? Um, I think the ball is in ZANU-PF's court, in my, in, in, in my view. Um, there, if you're going to, whether it's IFIs or external investment or the Chinese, um, there are certain um, prerequisites that, that any um, state that would like to attract external funding should have, um, domestic prerequisites. And Zanopir simply hasn't done those. Um, there's been demands for, you know, cutting down the, the size of the civil service. Um, there's been resistance um, towards that. Um, the controversy over the indigenization law, um, ZANU-PF has been resistant there as well. Um, so it, it's a lot about what ZANU-PF should begin to do um, itself, getting the, the prerequisites right to, to attract external money. Um, that's important. Mm. And then secondly, I mean, to be honest with the Zimbabwean electorate, I think to get out of um, the economic hole Zimbabwe is in, there is going to have to be a very painful package of austerity in Zimbabwe. But in its current um, um, standings, Zanopiv has not been honest about that, um, that this is what has to occur. And there's simply no compelling message about austerity to convince the population that we have to go through this pain for, say, maybe the next five years to be a, on a better economic footing. Um, instead, what the ruling party will talk about is sanctions, um, as usual, um, mm. a message which I think is now um, exhausted. So I'll, I'll, the ball is in Zanu's court, um, in my view. Um, it needs to get the prerequisites right. And then a message to the electorate, get the electorate on board. Like, this is going to be painful. Um, work with us. And also to be seen is one thing to get the electorate on board, but the, the ruling regime itself should also be seen to be part of um, that um, you know, um, austerity um, um, plan as well. There's no point... Uh, making life hard on citizens, making them go through a difficult austerity package, while saying ministers um, still get um, the, the latest Mercedes Benz um, every um, every few years or so, um, um, posh homes that they live in. Um, they, they, they live well, the, the ruling elite. So they also have to be seen to be, um, you know, going through that um, um, austerity with the citizens. And I think right now that's missing. And then the prerequisites for the external money. I mean, some people are, are saying that perhaps this is the beginning of the end of Mugabe's regime and, 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 and ZANU-PF as we've known it, which has been sort of the center of the, of the Zimbabwean political sort of um, state um, for, for, for decades now. And, and I'd love to hear from both of you. I'll start with you, Brian. Do you see this as, as what could perhaps begin the, 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 the forced resignation of President Mugabe or see a, a weakening, a significant weakening of, of ZANU-PF? What do you think? I think it's too early to call that. It's very difficult to call that, mainly because ZANU still has major coercive resources at its disposal and is prepared to, to use that. Um, and I think and I think Miles has, has written eloquently about that. Uh, the other point is um, that certainly they're facing challenges a deeper and much more formidable than they've ever faced before. 
and even a repressive response at this stage in itself it mm. doesn't settle the long term problems but they could certainly uh, hold on and uh, the other thing is that this current challenge we're seeing in the uh, in, in the urban social media kind of protests they're also very difficult to sustain this these are these are structures now which are much more fragile they're not tied to at the moment any serious political structures or any what were once formidable trade union structures. So they could also uh, dissipate over a longer period of time unless there's a new configuration within the opposition around a much more structured coalition and a much better messaging of how you, 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 you tap into this reservoir of discontent and channel it in much more substantive manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Dr. Blessing Miles, I'd like to hear from you on this, and, and especially in light of, of sort of a recent article you penned where you were, some might say, quite critical of, 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 of sort of digital digital activism and digital revolutions and, and, and how far they can go and, and their, I suppose, their usefulness or effectiveness uh, when trying to effect sort of large-scale political change. Um, I, I think they, they are useful, um, um, but only as part of a, of a wider set um, of other instruments that have to, to come into play. Um, as Brian was rightly um, pointing out, we really, for say, um, formidable um, um, civil society um, mm. structures on the ground. I think that is important. Um, social media activism tends to be fleeting. You know, it's, it's, it's a passing phenomenon. Um, but I think more more key um, is there's the role of the military um, in, in times such as this for f- instability. The military's attitude um, towards that instability is, is, is quite key. And in a lot of these social media conversations, um, the role of the military hasn't come up, mm. um, what side the military would, would take, um, in, in this sort of scenario. And as far as I, I read it, for as long as, um, Mugabe is still able to pay, um, the military, I think they will stay on his side. So, um, you've got a, you've got a complete block there. I don't think Mugabe is downfall. Um, is imminent. Um, I think if he is to leave office, um, it'll have to be around the 2018 um, election. And if elements that do want to see him leave office, um, i.e. the opposition, um, are to defeat him in the 2018 election, um, they certainly have to have a more coherent message, um, be better organized, um, better funded, um, and stronger um, commitment than that is present um, for that to be to be possible. Sorry, Dr. Blessing Miles, just staying with you. I mean, I find it interesting that you're talking about the 2018 elections. I mean, a lot of a lot of people on the ground, a lot of activists are really hoping that the, their protest action is a, is a thing of weeks and months. And you're talking about sort of a two year project. And I'm wondering just your thoughts on on how on how this kind of mass action and protest can be sustained, or this kind of energy and and sort of united front for a more transparent, more more equal state can be sustained for that period of time in a country where it's a lot of people are just focusing on on feeding themselves and surviving. It can't. I mean, I think I think Brian said it as well. It is passing, and I think I'm saying the same thing too. It, it's hard to sustain that kind of. But for me, the key thing is um, which side the military is on. Yeah. Um, so far, the military is still on the side of Zanu PF, and if the military remains on the side of Zanu PF, um, Islamic people will be movable. 
So I think electoral politics is still the way out. There's a lot of disillusionment mm. that um, mm. past elections have been rigged. Um, you you hear these um, um, assertions. Um, there's no point vo- voting. Let's let's protest is the way to go. We must remove him violently because um, he's always going to fix an election. Um, but my answer always to that would be, as I'm saying already, you don't have the military on your side. You're unlikely to succeed. Two, um, ZANU-PF has lost elections in the past. Uh, Mugabe lost the 2008 March election to to Morgan Chagirai, so he is beatable in the election. It's a, well, whatever whatever methods they may use to to try to make the election uh, platform uneven, um, they are beatable. So in, my argument would be: look, a massive turnout, overwhelming, um, um, in that in the election, and saying no to mm. um, the ruling establishment. Such a massive turnout, such a vote, uh, would be very hard for the ruling establishment to roll back, right? Um, the March election 2008 turnout wasn't that high, but it took Zanopia five weeks to release the results. Five weeks while they were fiddling the figures, trying to, you know, um, engineer a runoff. So you can imagine if there was an overwhelming turnout mm. saying no to the status quo. Um, it's difficult to fix such a result. So I, I think that there still are opportunities with electoral politics. Electoral politics still is still really the main goal, um, or main game in town, I should say, because they see, with protests, they simply don't have the military on their side. I mean, I hear you, and, and Professor Raftopoulos, I'm curious to hear from you on on your view as, as electoral politics as the way out, and also what people are describing there as being sort of a lack of lack of ideas and a lack of vision aside from being anti-Zanu. So there seems to be a sentiment that the MDC has, some say, sort of crumbled, some say lost its way, but there's, mm. there, there's, a, there's a description that there's really, there's nothing out there. In, mm. that, in that anybody who's not Zanu, the only thing they're saying is Zanu is bad. And, mm. and some describe that as being the reason why why. Pastor Evan was so popular in that mm-hmm. he, he had he sounded like he had something refreshing to say in a, in a political landscape that some say as being quite sort of scarce. Sorry, Professor Topless, can you hear us? Sorry, pro- sorry, Professor Topless, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear, but quite faint. Um, hello. Okay, sorry about that. I think we just had a sort of a mix-up. Um, sorry, just sticking with you, um, Doctor Blessing. I'm curious about what you think of, and this sort of outside the scope of some of what you've written uh, about the role of, of South Africa. So a lot of people um, seem to be either saying that uh, South Africa has a very important role to play, and others saying that South Africa must just stay out of it and has caused more harm than good in the past. Do you think that 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 uh, Zimbabwe's neighbor has a role to play in, in what's happening now, or what needs to happen between now and 2018? Um, yeah, I've heard those um, um, assertions. I think it was Simon Allison of um, the Daily Maverick who wrote um, a piece along that lines a few days ago. And my simple response to to that is, um, look, um, South Africa's role in Zimbabwe from the Mbeki years, the Zuma years, um, left a lot of opposition actors and civil society members um, quite um, disillusioned um, with the way it managed the um, Zimbabwean um, um, crisis. They they mm. felt um, that um, South Africa had not done enough um, to, to, to 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 catalyze um, democratization in Zimbabwe. So, in many ways, um, South Africa's moral authority in Zimbabwe is diminished. 
And to me, for South Africa to turn around now, to want to have an engaged role once again, um, I think that the question of moral authority immediately arises. How do you reestablish South African uh, moral authority um, in Zimbabwe, um, given its current depleted state? Um, I don't think you can. Um, secondly, I don't think the South African government wants to get involved. Um, that is particularly keen to be involved in what's going on in Zimbabwe. At a difficult time, um, 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 being the facilitator during the power-sharing arrangement from 2009 to 2013, I, I, um, my sense and the South African officials I talked to in the foreign ministry, when the election occurred and Zimbabwe was now off the static agenda, mm. the South Africans were very happy about that. It's difficult to manage. Um, and South Africa also has um, its own internal problems, right? Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to be engaged with, with foreign affairs to that degree um, when you have your own domestic issues to resolve. So I don't think the South Africans are particularly keen. Um, and there's, there's a question of moral authority. How do you reestablish that? Okay. So, Professor Raftopoulos, we lost you for a second. Are you back with us? Hello. Okay, perfect. There we go. Hi, sorry, um, we got cut off. No, that's fine. Um, yeah, just, let me, sorry? Let me respond to your... Oh, here question. we go. You remember this here? Yes. Yeah. I was going to say that I think um, it's not uh, protest and election, electoral politics are not necessarily contradictory. Okay. I think that it's important for to keep in mind that if there, are, if there are possibilities of sustaining protests which are linked towards uh, making sure that electoral conditions are better than they have been in the past and linked to a more cohesive opposition strategy, then they can be very effective. If you rely only on ZANU-PF to, to provide the conditions necessary for good elections, you're going to have a problem. Uh, the other thing is that uh, the criticism of the opposition, I think uh, that should be mm -hmm. tempered. They have, uh, the opposition have done pretty much everything to win elections they have, and have won elections. They've uh, they've been active in and the civics have been active since the 1990s. They've demonstrated, they've had stairways, they've had protests, they've had regional strategies of advocacy, and they've fought elections and they've won elections, and they've been denied the right to take state power. So it's not that the opposition have been useless, it's just that they've had a hugely repressive state against them in gaining power. Certainly, they've had their internal problems, divisions, they've lost messaging, but I think what we're seeing more recently is they're beginning to understand they have to revive their structures. They have to deal with the basic issues that have come out of this protest, which are poverty, corruption, inequality, and they have to get a much more cohesive message. But I think that uh, the, pro the, the possibility of further protests to ensure better electoral conditions, those, I think, are still on the agenda, and we might see that linkage growing in the, in the next year or so. Perfect. Thank you so much, Professor Brian Raftopoulos, calling from Western Cape, and of course, Dr. Blessing Miles Tendai. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, Miles. Okay. Bye, Miles. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. I like that we had a bit of camaraderie at the end there. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. Um, we're talking about Zimbabwe. It's been really a, a, a major focus of the conversation. Um, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen the hashtag this flag protest and seeing that catch on. We've seen the, the lack of pay for the, for the, for the public sector sort of wages uh, by the state. And that's really sparked a, a big, a big feeling of protest action. Um, so we're really just like spending, spending this, 
this hour just digging into that really and trying to get a, as much of a detailed and nuanced view as we can. And I think our, our next guest is actually really exciting. We've heard a lot about Pastor Evan um, here in South Africa, but our next next guest is also sort of one of the leaders of this protest who's been um, who's been on the ground on a lot of these issues. I mean, yeah, I mean, we just, as we wait to connect to him, I think for me, and, and I wish we had Simon Allison in here with us, but we just, in talking to him and following his tweets, it's been for me, at least just from here, it's been so inspiring watching what's going on in Harare. I mean, seeing the, the, the people, seeing outside the courtroom when Pastor Evan was being, was being sort of tried, seeing people like when, when they asked who, which lawyer here is, 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 is going to defend him. And you had, you know, over, over 50 people putting up their sort of identification and saying I am because knowing that if you're the lawyer defending Pastor Evan you're in trouble mm. so what happens when 50, 60, 100 people put up their put up their IDs and say it's, it's me it's us I think a lot of a lot of people seem to be inspired watching the events in Zimbabwe pastly, in the past week just because there's been a, apparently there's been a lack of sort of protests or, or what we're used to here in South Africa um, but also also I think one of the issues is that um According to Simon, at least, who was in Harare for, for the last week, there was a little bit of steam, the momentum that felt like it went out of the movement right now, just because the, the pastor who is the most prominent leader of this issue, um, of these protests sort of fled to Johannesburg. He said he came through a prior engagement, but then at the same time, you know, he'd just been arrested. It looks like his, his life could be at risk. And while you understand that, it feels you can see how some people might be disheartened by who they see as one of the most inspiring leaders now leaving the country. I mean, I hear you. I mean, I remember I remember finding out that he was sort of here, and after finding out that he that that sort of his life was under threat and he's in danger, and it's I think it's that balance. On one hand, if your life is in danger and and people are coming for you, you're clearly pushing the right buttons and you're and you're sort of on the right track in terms of in terms of what you need to be doing. On the other hand, if any time somebody stands up and is a formidable force, if they have to come and be in, be in Joburg or be in a safe house, then then how far can how formidable how, are yeah, you? How, how people are you, and how and how far can can protest action and activism go if if you can't actually stay and organize as opposed to organize and mobilize? And if you can't physically be there, then then it's a bit tough. Hmm. Okay, we're just gonna go into a quick break, and we'll be right back in just a second. Cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, you're in the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. Um, as mentioned before, we're talking all things Zimbabwe this hour um, and just trying to dig into the recent protest action there and trying to give as much context as we can. Next up, you'll be, we'll be hearing from Sten Zvoradzwa, who's the National Vendors Union of Zimbabwe chairperson. He's led protests against the vice president who had an almost two-year stay at a hotel. And, and, and Sten was a big part of protesting against that and saying, what's going on? He's been arrested and he's out on bail uh, after, after his involvement in the recent protests and has spoken out really strongly about the new import restrictions. So we want to hear a lot more about that. Sten, okay. can you hear us? Yes. Okay, perfect. Now, Sten, we'd like to just, I mean, really just hear from you as a person first. I mean, you were arrested over the weekend um, for your role in the recent protests. And I'm just... Really wondering how you're feeling right now, but your optimism around the the protest action and 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 you as a representative of the of the vendors union. Um, the the spirit is very high, and the inspiration continues to grow. We have in the past been limited to think that our issues are limited to only a street vending and economic uh, situation of the economy, but we are getting to realize that. Uh, 
our future also is in the hands of those in political power. Mm. Hence, hence uh, the, 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 the need for us as citizens to rise up and challenge some anomalies that are happening in the country. I mean, I hear you, Stan. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm really just thinking. I mean, as we spoke, we spoke with sort of two sort of Zimbabwean experts, you can call them, on the first half of the show, and they they spoke in their introductions about the increased informalization of the Zimbabwean economy, and that people are really having to not they don't have access to formal work and are having to really just make ends meet however they can. And a lot of that is through 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 being vendors, through through buying here and selling there and importing. And I'm and I'm. I'm curious to hear from you why the why the recent import ban seemed to be the thing that really caused a lot of outcry from 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 not only the union but from a lot of people in that position. What was it about the import ban that that really caused that that outcry? Um, it was very unthinkable for the government to impose a statutory instrument 64 of the import ban uh, before they consulted the people that are concerned and the people that are affected. You have seen uh, in Zimbabwe, 95% of uh, people are unemployed, and only 5% are in formal employment, meaning to say 95% of people were just cut off their livelihood. And this would obviously not affect the very person who is on the street. It would affect the person on the street and the family behind. So it, it affected nearly the entire population of Zimbabwe. And because of, of that scenario, you, you, you have seen people expressing their anger, seen people expressing their unhappiness, not because they just want to be uh, expressing this notion of unhappiness. Uh, people are tired of uh, things being imposed on them, but it actually relates directly to their livelihood. So uh, long and short of it, uh, Zimbabweans have got to the point where they're saying enough is enough. And if you are pushing for, for, for this agenda to have our livelihood cut, then you will rise up the bar and you will protest. This is why you see many, many pockets now protesting, cross-borders, vendors, you know, transport operators, because everyone else is affected. I mean, I'm, 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 I just want to stick with the import ban. I, I do want to talk about the wider issues, but just my final question specifically on the import ban is just around, I'd love you could give us, from a sort of somebody who's a part of your of your union, what, what is sort of the individual impact if i'm a vendor and this import ban that was that was put in is implemented how does that impact my business my livelihood my ability to to feed myself um south africa is our hub that is where we get things that we sell on a day-to-day basis and in terms of survival it, it means our life is dependent on the border being open crossing over, buying cheaper products, mm. coming over and sell. And this actually pushes prices in Zimbabwe lower. Because you see, before uh, before there was this ban, uh, cooking oil was quite tradable at good prices. But today, because of just this temporary ban, the prices of cooking oil in Zimbabwe just got up by more than $2. Meaning to say, if there is no control um, of, of the local market by import, imports, we suffer quite a lot. And in the end, we end up really not getting what you should get in terms of value. Mm. So as individuals on the street, we really need to compete on the open uh, regional market. And South Africa being our first hub, and uh, that supports our system. Um, thanks for that, Stan. Um, just to speak a bit about activism sort of from a wider lens. Um, I mean, it's been widely reported for, for a while now that it's, 
that being an, an, an activist or being outspoken or being appe- appearing to be anti-government or anti-government policy in Zimbabwe is not, is not very safe. So people disappearing, I mean, you being arrested, people being physically harmed, people having to go into exile. So I'm curious, I'm curious how you, how you live and face these, these challenges and why, why you still sort of joined and chose to, to live this role and, and how you still continue to do so despite these sort of enormous obstacles. Uh, my life as a person is very simple. I need to survive a life that is free. But uh, since the age of 11 up to today, I've never survived a life that is free. We, we've attained independence, but in that independence, there is no freedom. So I got to a point where I say to myself, for the generations to come, I need to play my part. And playing my part is to stand up and rise against any system that will deprive people of their rights, people of their freedom. And because of this uh, inspiration, I am driven to ensure that this life that I am fighting is beyond my person, is beyond myself. It goes beyond generations. And I will continue to fight, and despite all the uh, risks that are associated with it. Yes, we know that our government at times is very ruthless, it kills people, it abducts people, but uh, surely we need to be able to do it in a systematic way so, so that the system accepts. The beauty about what is happening now is that um, all citizens across the board are in one way or the other affected. Others have put money in their banks, but they can't get it out. Others have got 10,000 US dollars in the bank, but they will only get $50 per day. So everyone else is unhappy. And these and happy moments create a force to rise up and protest and say, look, the government, which policies are you putting in place to protect us? And you, you will see this happening broader and bigger every day. And we are saying at this point, citizens are now being driven by problems to act. But you see, our government is, is good at blaming the West. They are first to say, look, the West, you are sponsoring our Zimbabweans, mm. which is not true. Zimbabweans are being sponsored by hunger, by poverty. They are being sponsored by the problems that the government created. So long and short of it, we continue to do what we are doing because the inspiration is coming out of the need to correct our situation and to regain our freedom. Stan, you mentioned that that that, that the recent policies and, and, and sort of the recent context in Zimbabwe is affecting people across the board and and I took that to mean that the, uh, the public sector wage wage is not being paid I took that to mean the outcry after the, the, the this flag protest sort of created and, and and including that is the import ban and the outcry on that and I'm curious if you if you think that between all this dissatisfaction and recent sort of uprising do you think that in that lies perhaps a critical mass that could could begin perhaps the, the, the beginning of the end of the ZANU-PF regime or Mugabe's reign? Um, truly speaking, ZANU-PF is done. It's gone. If you push a dog in the corner, you will sustain it for a while, but it will find a way out. But at the moment, ZANU-PF is in a corner and all angles have been shut. They can't come out of that corner because we have seen protests happening in years past, and ZANU-PF uh, resorts to violence to counter protests. But this time round, 
they can't resort to violence because if they resort to violence, it's as good as they are going to kill the entire population of Zimbabwe. And because of that, they are now timid. They cannot overpower the masses. And in the in the interest of trying to protect their skin, ZANU-PF will surely go. The masses that are being created around this satisfaction are not only working because there are problems, but they are working together because they've seen it all from the past that ZANU-PF does not listen, that ZANU-PF does not consult, ZANU-PF does not learn. And because of this past problem, people are united under one front. Even political opposition political parties, uh, in this day, they are actually doing one thing, agree on issues that are common, meaning to say ZANU-PF this time round is not going to survive. Um, so just two responses to that. My one is just, do you think, I mean, we spoke with some guests earlier and they were quite adamant that without including the military or factoring in the military, that it's it's going to be very difficult for like a, a, a sort of a mass action or mass protest action to move forward without factoring in that at the end of the day, the ZANU-PF government is who pays the military. And until there's a way around that, the, the, that the regular citizens are still sort of fighting against a an army should it come to that and do, and you still sound very confident that even despite factoring that in that that mass action will still prevail yeah true indeed the the, the mass action will still prevail because number one our constitution does not allow the army to be involved uh, in the running of the economy especially in times of upheaval or times of um, or of times of uh, unrest, section 211 to 213 of our constitution specifies clearly how and why the army should be on the street. But because the army themselves are not getting paid, they are on the edge, and they will not participate in this mafia thinking of the government to try and use them and dump them. So long and short of it, the army is not going to be involved. In, in, in the in the fight against the protest. And in any case, and in any event, only a few individuals from the army are, are benefiting. And the majority of the soldiers are not benefiting. Meaning to say, those soldiers who join in uh, quietly behind the masses, because all they want is now is bread and butter on their tables. I mean, I mean, I hear you still. I think I just worry that you're assuming that, that the ZANU-PF would actually follow the constitution, would actually care what the constitution says if it really came to the day when they had to use armed force to, to protect their seat in power. Do you think they would actually bother with the constitution? It, it, at the moment, it may be very um, ironic to reset the constitution, but as, the, as it stands on the ground... Hmm. They will be comped. Sorry, Stan, can you hear us? Of those that are mm. suffering. No, that's fine. Sorry, Surely, you, you broke up for a second. You were saying about the Constitution? Yeah. Um, I, I'm saying they cannot uh, uh, break the rules or tenets of the Constitution because the majority of those that are affected in Zimbabwe seem to be agreeing on one thing. Even the, the Zimbabwe Public Police, only the top brass that are benefiting from the ZANPF-led government, mm. and the top commanders in the army that are benefiting from the ZANPF-led government 
they are the only few individuals who try and protect uh, the system. But the majority are in sync and in agreement that things are not all right. So they won't win it, and they won't be able to run away from the tenets of the Constitution. This is why you see today, even the police, if the cameras are out there, they are intimidated to, to beat people. Mm. They only beat people in corners. But when these issues come out on the open, they actually get so timid because they know the naming and shaming and all these uh, processes to try and expose them are underway. Long, long, long and short of it, we are happy that all citizens are united under one banner to fight. Um, I'm curious that you say all citizens and so and all sort of opposition parties are united under one banner, because I mean what a lot of people are describing is that is that that's not the case. Um, is that the sort of the MDC is trying to find a way to be relevant at some point, embracing that this flag movement at some point is trying to do something. Um, we have of course the this flag movement with Pastor Evan. Um, so as much as the country, you, as you say, is united in terms of what you describe as suffering, or at the very least inequality and very tough sort of economic conditions, um, a lot of people would say that there's not actually a unifying idea outside of people saying that they don't like ZANU-PF and that they don't, they don't like the economic conditions they have to live under. Do you think it's, A, do you agree that there's no other sort of ideas that are being put forward on what happens next? And two, do you think it's sufficient for people to just be anti-ZANU-PF or do they actually need more creativity in terms of what they're trying to create? As citizens, we have learned from our uh, dark past. Today, we all know that there is diversity in thinking. People differ and people apply different uh, uh, procedures. But as a unified, a unified, formidable citizenry. We have come to realize, and these, these are lessons drawn from our past, uh, that uh, we need to have a forces run beyond individuals. When we are talking about the MDC, we should not be talking about Sangrai. When we are talking about National Vendors Union, we should not be talking about Senizorwas. When we are talking of Zim uh, People First, we should not be talking about Maimujuri. And what we are doing at the moment is citizens we combine our efforts, and this is truly happening, because I get so much involved in other areas that I've never been involved in the past. Because we call each other now and educate each other mm. to up our game in civic education. Because zanu led government has made it a point that we do not receive enough civic education or political education for us to make informed decisions. But now we are at that gear to be able to teach ourselves groom ourselves, push for ourselves. So there may be pockets that are quite weak, but mm. those pockets will not overrun the bigger picture mm. in terms of running national issues. Okay. Um, just sort of as we sort of wrap up, I've got sort of two questions to go. Um, one, we've, we've seen that Pastor Evan Maurire has had to, um, some might say, flee to Johannesburg because of sort of threats on his life and feeling that his life is in danger based on his, his the profile he's gotten as sort of the, the, the anti-government sort of leader or spokesperson now. Do you see that as a, as a blow um, to the momentum that's been built up or a sign that things are weakening? No, no not at all. Um if if you be, if you want to become a hero, it is good that you become a hero at the same time surviving. It's no good to become a dead hero, all right? But if there is means for one to retreat, it's good. But you will not retreat for forever. Mm. Uh, <laughs> we are in total support. 
of the pastor. And we also agree with this tenet as pastor to rise up and speak about the negative uh, aspects of a people's life through government, through civic uh, organizations. It is, it is good for pastors to adopt such scenarios because all along, pastors were quiet. They never used to condemn anything that Zanu PF used to do. They never used to condemn killing. They never used to condemn anything. But this is a landmark development that the pastor has set a standard. And this standard is going to go years and years in trying to revive other pastors who were quiet and passive about uh, people's abuse. The Bible doesn't support that, but pastors were quiet. So we, we, we as a nation, we are tapping into the benefits of every person who has got a bright idea. His publicity is great. His publicity is good. And wherever he is, and I believe he's in South Africa now, mm. um, he, should, he, he, he deserves the protection and the immunity as a leader. Number one, South Africa must ensure that the pastor is in safe hands. And when he comes back to Zimbabwe, mm. if anything goes amiss with Pastor Mawariri, we want to know that uh, uh, where, where is he and how is he going where? So, in, so we are we are clear that abductions in the past were done, yes, and um, but we must not continue to allow these abductions uh, to continue. So we let's just call Itai uh, Zamara's abduction to be the last, and if that is the last, uh, we also at the same time demand that the government must bring him back because we are nearly or almost fifty-fifty that the government has not killed Zamara yet. Tamara is still alive. We, we, we are still optimistic. But if Mawari then disappears... Unfortunately, I was hoping to have one more question about the future and, and what, what are the next step is. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get Stern back. If you're just tuning in, that was Stens Vorazwa, who's the National Union of Zimbabwe, National Vendor Union of Zimbabwe chairperson. Um... And we just really thought it would be important to get to get the input of somebody who's on the ground, who's who's dealing with vendors, representing vendors who are in an informal economy. That's you know majority of people in the country. It's people who are sort of making a plan and trying to make ends meet. And he's also played a key role in the broader protests too. He's, I don't think he's not just isolated with vendors. He's a he's a key figure in some of the activism and protests going on in Zimbabwe right now. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Um, thanks so much for everybody who tuned in and was seeing a lot of activity on Twitter. So it's a massive thank you to everybody, not only who requested the show, but who's asking questions and giving feedback and challenging us to do, you know, better work. Massive thank you to everybody who make this possible, especially to Greg Nicholson, who didn't say much during the show, but, but had a really, really big hand on, on making that all happen. It is an honor and a privilege to serve beside you, sir. Download the podcast, share it far and wide. We'll see you next week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.